Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Health Conversations, my guest is Jay Nera. Jay is a powerlifter who at one point in his career was the strongest human in his weight class. He's a gym owner, a health advocate, and just a wealth of information when it comes to athletic performance and also philosophy. He's got a deep understanding of the mind, and we share a very similar mindset with questioning the status quo and the perpetual search for the truth within different topics. Really enjoyed our chat and definitely someone that will be back for future episodes. We talk a lot about uh, we talk about a lot of different things, including sports, philosophy, and his new app, which helps make sense of the wealth of data we can now collect from our bodies. This episode is sponsored by TFC Shop, your one-stop shop for natural footwear that lets your feet function optimally, for balance beams that let you work on your hip stability, and for simple foot health accessories like toe spreaders and lacrosse balls that let you take back control over the health of your foundation. We ship products globally out of Canada, out of Ottawa, Canada, and you can check out what we offer by visiting tfc-shop.com. This episode is also brought to you by the Roasters Pack. Our team at TFC HQ are big fans of coffee, and this Canadian company provides a unique subscription service that delivers you three great coffees to your door each month and gives you the story behind each of the craft roasters that the beans come from. Check out theroasterspack.com and use the code FOOT at checkout and you'll get 7 bucks off your first month of any subscription, which start at $27 a month, all in, including shipping and taxes, which works out to less than a dollar per cup um, and gives some great value. So use the code FOOT at checkout, that's at theroasterspack.com, and you'll be able to get $7 off your first month's subscription. Last but not least, this episode is also sponsored by our travel partner, Nanook Protective Hard Cases, which we use to transport gear to and from our seminars and workshops. They make super high-quality hard cases that keep your electronics safe during travel, and you can check out their stuff at nanook.com, N-A-N-U-K.com. Really enjoyed this episode with Jay. Hope you enjoyed it as well. Let's dig into it. It's the TFC Audio Project. It's a collective effort. Help people understand their bodies, starting at the feet or the gateway for people to see that there's an issue. You know, a foot conversation is always a whole body conversation. Hey folks, Nick here, back for another episode of Health Conversations. Guest today is Jay Nera. Jay is a local auto guy. Uh, he's someone that I've kind of been in contact uh, with for a while. We went to the same gym back in the day, um, the YMCA, and he's... Definitely a very um, interesting human in terms of his perspective on a lot of topics. So I think this will probably be a, um, episode one of many potentially down the road. So I, I think we'll just start with Jay. Jay, thanks for coming uh, and having a chat. Me. No worries. And so Jay is a local gym owner. He has a history of powerlifting, uh, bobsled, I believe. He's a and like I said, he's just a very he has a lot to say about a lot of different topics, which is not what you typically expect for someone um, of his build. You see people that are very muscular on the street, and you don't normally think that there's much depth to it, but Jay is definitely an anomaly to that. So, Jay, maybe start by introducing yourself, and then uh, then we can get into a couple different things. So, I guess I'm just uh, another stupid meathead. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean uh, to say it like that. Uh, uh, yeah, so my name is Jay Nera. I grew up here in Ottawa. Uh Nick and I met each other a long, long time ago at the YMCA Maryville, which is kind of like a hub for strength and bodybuilding way back in the day. That was an insane hub too. Like there was a lot of insane level human beings in terms of the physical bodies. And I, you only really understand the level it was at when you leave and you're like, that wasn't normal. Yeah, it wasn't normal at all. Yeah. And, and the thing that's really like, I have the squat rack. Yeah, at my gym still. Oh like yeah, that, yeah. That, the black because you and rack. Willie picked up a lot of the gear, right? Yeah, so I still have that at my gym, and uh, every time I look at that, I'm like, "That's where champions are made." <laughs> I think about how many track athletes, uh, how many 
you know, Highland Games athletes, like just so many different power lifters. Yeah. Uh, I trained there for bobsleigh. There's a lot of rugby players. You were a rugby player back then. Mm-hmm. There's so many different athletes that have trained in that one rack that it's like, to me, it's, it's, it's way more symbolic piece. than just a rack. Yeah. Yeah. The YMCA cool. was hilarious because they're like that community, you know, it wasn't, you'd walk in there and you knew everyone by the nod. I called it the YMCA nod. You'd go out at night or something like that. You'd see someone, you just give each other a nod and you knew it was like, it was like a nonverbal hello because you're just part of like this very unique community of people that are going to train, like truly train. They're not going there to as a social event. They're going there to train. And it was a very different atmosphere before they renovated the place. And I, I think um, it, that's something you don't find now yeah. in gyms. Like when I go to gyms, you, you don't see that anymore. You don't see that. One thing that I find really neat is what you're referring to, like the nod. <laughs> I was just talking about that the other day is. Before CrossFit became huge and weightlifting shoes were so ubiquitous, you could get yeah. them so many different places. You could go, if I was traveling and I'm in Toronto and I'm training in a gym and I see a guy wearing weightlifting <laughs> shoes. That's true. We'd just give each other the nod. Yeah, you already you know, have a, a relationship. Yeah, it's like yeah. we just know. It's like you're serious. You're a strength athlete. I get yeah. it. What's up, man? Like, we're cool. Yeah. We you know, speak and, the same language. Kind yeah, of. yeah. And I just, cool. you don't get that now, though. No, you don't. So um, maybe let's start. Like, I'm curious to know um where you started in in terms of the world of movement and just like as a you know a little bit of a synopsis on what your path was like when you were growing up what were you interested in did you do martial arts did you lift what got you into lifting and then kind of how you got to where you are today so today you're um well we can talk about how you train today and how that's different from before but let's start with like what were you into as a kid who were your role models or your idols when you're growing up uh well my first role model it sounds silly all the time but uh conan Conan was Conan my first. Yeah, I learned I, I learned how to use a VCR at the age of three, <laughs> like three and a half, four, because I was obsessed with Conan. Nice. So like I would get up every morning, I would make my bowl of cereal and I would, like, it could be five in the morning, like before my parents get up and I would just be rewinding and playing Conan. That's awesome. And uh, so that was my first one. So like the wheel of, you know what I mean? The wheel of woe, whatever, not the wheel, that was a tree of woe, but uh, why can't I think of the term right now? Cool. Uh, so Arnold, was it Arnold? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'd say, I'd say Arnold was probably one of the first ones. And then later on it was Bruce Lee. Um, I I took gymnastics for a little bit growing up. Uh, sorry, at a young age, I was introduced into gymnastics. Yeah. And then, uh, one of my uncles took me and he let me watch blood sport. I think that was maybe six or seven. The cool uncle, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) We we watched blood sport and I was like, this is awesome. And then he's like, oh, if you love this, then you got to watch Bruce Lee. So then it was Bruce Lee from there. I had a couple of Jeet Kune Do books. And, uh, and it just kind of took off from there. Nice. And then, so did you end up pursuing martial arts for a while or was this more like a hobby thing? Or? Yeah, I, I took, uh, I took Taekwondo for about two years at, uh, Taiyun Lee. He's mm-hmm. like in North America, he has the most Dan's like nine and a half Dan's or something. Uh, cool. apparently that's really good. Okay. I don't um, know what Dan is, but if he's, if you're talking about him, it's, it's stri- stripes on the black belt. Okay. Okay. And, uh, so he had like nine and a half, which was a really big deal. And apparently, and, uh, like, to be honest with you, I don't really think much about Taekwondo mm-hmm. like in hindsight, but, uh, looking at it, uh, it was a great experience. I was a kid that they used to carry out in the splits and I would break the boards. Nice. You know, they, everyone, every dojo has like yep. that young kid who does all the weird stuff. It's like so. the rite of passage, the, the one specimen that's able to yeah, do it. So, so I was like that kid because like when I, when I, even from a young age, when I get into something, I, I get pretty obsessive about it. Yep. So they set up a TV for me in the basement. Uh, we had two punching bags down there, a light one and a heavy one. I could easily stay down there for like six hours, seven That's hours, awesome. and I'd just be hitting the bag watching movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like those montage movies back then are just 
<laughs> they make you want to train. Yeah, so, uh, I agree. They're good, like pump up things where you're like, oh goddamn, I'm not training hard enough. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So, so a lot of it came from there, and uh, I just really fell in love with uh, taekwondo and boxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my mom wouldn't let me take boxing, but I still had all the speed bags and everything set up in the yeah. basement. And uh, I love skipping, and I do pull-ups from the beams and stuff. So I was always doing that very early. Um, and then I got into basketball, and then I kind of shifted away from that. Cool. So Cool. And do you still um, do you still take from martial arts and how you train right now? Or did you, did you always have, like, like, what did you... I feel like sometimes people do martial arts, and they might not do the actual martial art, but they take a lot of principles that they learn, whether that's, like, discipline or um, just, like, independent training. I think yeah. it's a big one because I know other people that do independent pure sports like maybe lifting or Olympic weightlifting and some of them have a background where they're like I learned to train solo through and for some of them it was martial arts I find that's a pattern that I see yeah when I, whenever I hear stuff like that I always wonder like I just have these conversations with Willie if if like that that will to do things is genetic or if it's learned mm-hmm. so you wonder is is the person who does the martial arts do they learn how to do things by themselves and train alone in the basement because only mm-hmm. certain people are like that i love training by myself mm-hmm. my best training sessions are when i go into dynamo at 10:30 at night i turn the music on and i ha- or i or i don't have any music yeah and i just set my own tone and i train I could be in and out of there in 45 minutes and having a mate, like one of the best workouts I've ever had. Yeah. Whereas if I'm in there with other people, even if they're full of intensity or anything, like they can still change my tone. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so I, I like that solo aspect yep. and I don't know how much of it is genetic or like nature nurture on that, but it definitely, uh, it definitely, it's definitely important. What like, is, yeah. I always find that very curious too. And like what, what I've kind of come to just my opinion is that there is a big nature element, but the nurture that you receive early imprints on you to the point where that nature element exposes itself. And it's almost like, um, the nature is the flower, but the water that you use to blossom that flower is the nurture. And if you don't get that, maybe you don't actually capitalize on what your nature might, you know, bring you towards. But I think, um, like early athletics or an early discipline or an early outlet, I guess is the best way to do it is really what like accentuates that and brings it out. So, but yeah, I think that's always like a very interesting thought experiment is like, is it this or is it like chicken or the egg sometimes where it's like, it's it's hard to just, hindsight's always 2020. You can rationalize it and, and make whatever argument you want and probably support it quite well, but it's, it's always, it's always an interesting debate. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And then, so then you got into basketball and that was kind of the end of more, more or less the end of martial arts. And then when you went into like, High school, university. When did you get into powerlifting, basically? Uh, well, it. so I was playing basketball in high school, and then I got. Uh, I wanted to play football forever. Okay. My mother's a nurse, so that's why I never was allowed to get into boxing. Gotcha. And then uh, I really wanted to play football, and I was putting on a lot of size, a lot more muscular than a lot of my friends. Not necessarily bigger, but I was just, like, mm-hmm. very well put together. And uh, they're all like, Jay, like, you got to play football, man. Like, you're going to kill it. Like, you're so fast on the court. You got to play football. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of my friends said, you can leave your equipment in in my trunk and you just bike out to practice. (laughs) To hide from your mom? Yeah. So (laughs) so I did that. So I joined the football team and I started practicing. And then uh, our first game, I, I scored a couple touchdowns. I was a wide receiver. Gotcha. Like position where you don't have to know anything. Yep. Just run this pattern. Run and catch. We'll throw it to you, right? (laughs) And, uh. And I scored a couple touchdowns, and our running back, our fullback, his parents were friends with my parents. Uh, 
and they were good talking night. and she's like, Oh, Jason scored two touchdowns. He's so good. You should have seen him. Da, da, da. And my mom just snapped. <laughs> she lost it on me, but I was just like, mom, you don't get it. Like I'm good. Like, don't worry. Like we're wearing equipment, blah, blah, blah. But she's a nurse. She's seen people hurt their necks before. Yep. And then she came out to the, one of our games and I ran a slant pattern, which is just like step, step, then turn inside at like a 135 degree angle about. Yep. And uh, you catch it kind of, just around the same level as the linebackers right before them. Mm-hmm. So you just have to pass one and then it's on to the safety. So I caught it, got through through the linebackers and it was just me and the safety. And just I just like, instead of dancing, he was lighter. So mm-hmm. I just plowed through him <laughs> and it was like a yard sale. Just like, <laughs> just everything in the air. And then my mom was like, "Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you're. Oh, oh, you yeah. can do that." And then okay. she was. She was. Allowed. I should be worried for the other kids. Yeah, she was the loudest one in the crowd after that. So nice. then she supported football and kind of got got pretty good. So then I went out to uh, I went to Western and I walked on. I, I wanted to play basketball. I was still a basketball player. I wanted to play basketball there, but their tryouts weren't until September, mm-hmm. and the football tryouts were first. And they had a guy who's a really good basketball player going into his fifth year. And they had just come off a national title. So it would have been a hard team to make. Yeah. So I, uh, so I tried out for football first. I made it and he put me on as a running back, which I had never played before. I took my first handoff in a scrimmage. I went like this. Yeah. The double underhand. Nice. And he actually stopped the scrimmage and said, Nero, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) If you were a horse, I would have taken you out back and shot you by now. (laughs) And, uh, and anyway, so that was bad. So I made so I made the team on there as a running back, and then uh, I went to I went to try out for basketball, and the football coach put a nix on it. He said no. Interesting. He said no. You're not allowed. You have to learn <laughs> how to got, play. He called dibs on you. Yeah. So I so my basketball dreams kind of ended there, and I kept getting bigger anyways. So mm-hmm. uh, and did you end, start to like love football? Like, were you really starting to enjoy it? Did it? I I love football in the sense like of the team aspect. I loved being a part of the team. I love the guys on the team. So there's still so many of those guys are some of my closest friends still. Oh, cool. Um, but one thing that, that I've always realized is I like training for the sports more than I like the sport itself. <laughs> Interesting. And I think that's really neat. And uh, th- that's one of the things that made powerlifting more appealing to me. Hmm. Um, so so after, after football, uh, the season was ending. I was doing front squats in a gym. And I was wearing my Western football shirt and some guy walked up. I had four plates on there and I was doing singles. And uh, he's like... That's heavy, by the way, for anyone that doesn't lift. That's extremely heavy. Okay. Western had a good... Like when I did... So shout out to Western. I did my physio at Western. And I did a, a fellowship after where I worked with the varsity teams. And they have a... I don't know how the training program was in terms of like the strength conditioning when you were there. But it was pretty impressive. Like they had a very... Obviously they have... Um, a good alumni that donates a lot of money to the football program. They had a really nice facility, but their strength conditioning coach was actually a very smart guy in terms of he didn't do the cookie cutter stuff, but he did a he did a lot of power and, and strength stuff that was kind of non traditional based on what I had known at that point in time. So, did you find that when you were there? Like, did it have uh, a good strength coach? When when I was there, no, we didn't really have a good program. We didn't have a good facility. We had this room okay. called the Cage, which was a really damp room. Nice. Uh, it was actually pretty awesome, but cool. it was. It was dungy. Gotcha. And uh, like in the summer, it was so humid. I had a, I dropped 275 on my chest because I was suicide gripping by myself. <laughs> I had never pressed it back up so fast in my life. I feel like those dungy um, places set the tone. Like it's just when I boxed, it was like beaver boxing back in the day. It was just this grimy. It smelled, but it was like a sanctuary for you walk in there and you work. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was just like, it set the tone when you walked I, in. I don't think people get that though. So, no, you like, tell other people and they're like, ew. I, f- I find it amazing. Like I, I'm talking about that rack at the YMCA, that beautiful black rack, right? Yep. Just like this little, it's nothing special, but it's it's strong enough to handle all the loads. Yep. Everyone trained on it. But at the YMCA, we'd have like eight or nine guys on this one rack, one rack. Yep. You'd have like three guys doing weighted pull-ups off of it, two or three guys squatting and a couple people doing deadlifts behind it on the platform. Mm-hmm. And one person working at a time, everyone else just hanging out, cheering them on, spotting, changing the weights together. And uh, you might go there and train for three hours, uh, like which is obviously a very long session. Yeah. But you got the work in. And when you were doing the sets, it was like everyone's eyes are on you and you're working mm-hmm. hard. It was, it was pretty awesome. And now I look at people and they're like, oh, I would like... No one shares racks anymore. Yeah. You're lucky if you see two people squatting together. Yeah. Like, it's weird. Sometimes when Cade and I are training together, uh, we'll be setting up and it's just like, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, he'll come squat with me. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but no one else does that anymore. Yeah. It's just because he used to train with me at the YMCA. Yeah. It's, it's a just... different mindset. I remember that too. That that squat rack was like the epicenter for inspiration. You'd look over, like if you're benching or whatever, you'd look over the rack and be like, holy shit those guys are do- those guys are working like they're yeah. not just and you take inspiration from it and you take energy from it too and it was like everything in that section you know it was like the machines the the cardio machines were on one side and then the lifting stuff was on the other and everyone in the lifting section you could tell their eyeballs went there at some point and they would check out what was going on and they would feed off it and um yeah it, i think it's hard for people to understand that because no one's if unless you're deep in that world or not deep in that world but unless you train in a gym like that and been exposed to that environment, you don't see those anymore. It's all big box gyms. It's all like seas of racks where, and even I noticed when the power, when the hammer strength racks went in, like it was just, it's a different dynamic because you no longer have to share a rack. Mm-hmm. And people take that as just, because it's not, you're not forced to like be around the central hub anymore. So it changes the dynamic of your training. You're not forced to interact with someone and chat with them or even like helping to unload a rack is a certain connection that you get with the other person in that training session that is it's very abstract right like to a person that's never experienced that they're like ah uh, you're crazy i don't know what you're talking about but there is something there yeah. so i remember that being really cool yeah I, and i can't even like when i lived in japan i was training in this gym the gold's gym in saitama the saitama super arena mm-hmm. okay it's this beautiful gym lots of national level bodybuilders uh, the national uh, cycling teams and stuff train there lots of many intense athletes there right I still dreamed about coming to Ottawa and training on this like wood platform at the back of the YMCA with, with a bunch of power lifters. And I wasn't even a power lifter back then. I just, I just loved that one little spot. Very right? cool. Yeah. So that, so would you say that you first started getting into like serious lifting at Western when you're training for football? Was that like kind of your gateway into the world of like, was that what got you hooked in lifting basically? Yeah, I was, uh, it's, it's actually, I was doing, it's cause we had to start doing cleans mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to do them and no one at Western really taught them. You know, the football clean, they sprawl the legs out and they yeah. get like super ugly. They get the of. weight up, but it's not really yeah, so, biomechanically. So, efficient. so I was doing that, but like just by watching myself in the mirror when I'm doing, it, I'm like, Hey, this is really ugly. Like, yeah. <laughs> so one Christmas I was back and, uh, Sam Dubé was in there. He was training Yes, and I didn't Sam. really know him, but you know, so I asked him, so I was 19 or 20 years old and I asked him like, Hey man, can I, can I just get some advice on the clean? And he was working out with his girlfriend and he didn't really know me. So he's just kind of like, uh, yeah, I'll watch you from the corner of my eye. He didn't really give me any attention. Yeah. Uh, but then I did one and I dropped it was just two plates on there and I dropped it 
So I went, I dropped under it, and then I just stood up, right? And he, uh, and then he rushed over, and he was like, "Whoa!" He's like, "You stood." <laughs> he was like, "You stood up with that really easily." I was like, "Well, yeah, it's like two plates, like you know, like I don't know, like can you help me with my clean?" Yeah. And uh, and then he started helping me, and he said, uh, he, "It's the first time I ever heard the saying form follows function." And, uh, and it really is like, what do you mean? He's like, how you look like everything you do, like, don't waste your time with all these bodybuilding movements. Like you're going to look really strong when you are really strong. So form follows function. That's an important point. And, yeah. uh, and I was just kind of like, okay. And then he was like, he's like, yeah, like pretty much if you don't do it with a barbell or, uh, or chin ups and dips kind of thing, like you don't need to do it. It's not that important. Hmm. And then from there I started putting my like uh progressing my training based around those so all the primaries were the big compound movements yeah and from there i really started getting big once i started training like that and i think yeah anyway i think that's one of the biggest things so so many people majoring in the minors and doing all these little external rotator exercises and stuff it's like yeah that's misplaced focus yeah that stuff's very good for maintaining health but we need to you know biggest bang for our buck kind of exercises and then did you start so so from then on like your personality where you just kind of obsess on something that you really get interested in. Did you start competing in powerlifting? Cause I know bobsledding was in there somewhere along your trajectory. Yeah, no, I didn't. I had, I had gone to a couple powerlifting meets. Um, and, uh, like there was one in, in Ottawa and one of the guys I used to work with at this bar, Jim Bob Ray's was that popular when you were there? Yes. That yes. was there until that was still there when I graduated, but now it's been replaced by, by a different place. But yeah, oh, JBR's was like a staple. That was the most intense bar. Like, <laughs> I had, I used to tell people my name was Sonny. So that when I was on campus, I could tell if people were actually my friends or not. Gotcha. Like, Oh, Sonny. And I'd be like, Hey, <laughs> that's hilarious. Up, yeah. Yeah. I'm not letting you in. Joe cool is still there. Joe yeah. cool is still there. Uh, but yeah, JBR's is, uh, I think they had, it's like any bar. You have something that you, something bad happens and you have to change the name or else you get in even more trouble or something like that. So I think that was the stimulus, but it was a, Sad day when that name disappeared. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, so I was in there, and one of my one of the guys I worked with, his brother was a powerlifter. Uh, was his brother's name Dan Shea, I think, and he was like a national level powerlifter, young guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went to watch, but it was all single ply. They're all wearing all the equipment. I didn't really get it, so I'm like, I'm not going to get into this. Mm-hmm. I actually saw Willie there, and because like Willie and I didn't really know each other, but we knew each other. It was like the YMCA nod kind yep. of thing. Um, but. Uh, and we started talking about powerlifting there, but uh, but then I got into bobsleigh, and then after bobsleigh, I was looking for things to do, and I needed something where I could train by myself all the time, just because I like to train on my own schedule. I mm-hmm. didn't like having to work around partners or coaches, and uh, I, I initially got into weightlifting, and I love weightlifting. Weightlifting is it's, it's a poetic one. It's very poetic weightlifting. What do you mean and, by poetic? Like, there's. When you when you pick the bar up, if you don't pick it up perfectly, you can still make minor adjustments to still, you know what I mean. It has that finesse. There's yeah, kind of like in everyone bas- does it differently. Yeah, or well, can do it, can there's do similar it. ways, but like kind of like in basketball, like someone jumps and they go to take a shot and they're they're drifting. There's little adjustments that they make. Yeah. So when you're weightlifting, you're using some maximal loads. So like let's say you get a little bit over your toes, you get a little bit over your toes. You can still kind of like make the minor adjustments and corrections to get there and still finish the pull. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think it's really... Uh, so poetic in the sense that everyone has the opportunity to put their own signature on on a lift, even though it might look the same. Is that kind of what you mean by poetic? Well, there's that aspect as well, because no one, like, if we... And it's like that in powerlifting also, but when you look at different lifters from different different places, you notice the coaching is very different, but they're all very effective. Hmm. 
right? Yeah, very true. Yeah. It's like they're all speaking the same language, but with a different accent. Kind of, yeah. And it also it also has to do a lot with like the anthropometrics of certain peoples. Yeah. Um, like you look at the Chinese weightlifters, they're much more upright. They, they're much more quad dominant in their pulls, mm-hmm. right? Whereas like Americans lean over more and are much more hip dominant in their pulls. Hmm. So there's a lot of different things like where they hold the bar. Um, you think that has more to do with uh, like genetic patterns and how their bodies are built? Or do you think that has more to do with coaching? Or is it both? Or does one cause the other? Well, it's both because like if like when I'm coaching someone, I'm going to look at their levers and that will help determine because there's certain principles that we want to follow. Like, for example, if we're squatting, we want the bar to be over the center of the foot. Yeah. Right. Just for balance. So if someone has a longer torso and shorter femurs, they're going to be more upright. Yeah. So you play your strengths based on where your advantages might be. Yeah. 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 So but but weightlifting, I I just find weightlifting to be a very fascinating sport. It has a nice explosive violence to it. That is really (laughs) cool. Like there's there's a nice aggression to it. The clean is by far one of the most aggressive things that you can do and the jerk is probably the most violent thing that you can do and they're aggressive and violent yet they're also elegant all in the same because yeah. they, they need to be yeah right to, to make sure that you're controlling that massive load in a within a very narrow kind of scope of, of where you have control versus where you don't so even though it's violent it's still like it is this kind of be- beautiful duality of like that looks vicious but it also looks very elegant yeah the snatch and the snatch is by far the most elegant like the finesse with power at the same time on the snatch is pretty crazy. Yeah. The only the only things that I can think about that maybe have like a similar kind of respect for me are discus and hammer throwing hmm. uh, as far as like power and finesse. And I got a whole new different level of respect for track and field and events like that that weren't even on my radar. Like you know of them, but you don't actually see it. And when I was doing uh, the fellowship with the varsity team, I would go and watch. I was kind of lucky. They had the, the big arena, like the hockey rink that would be on the whole perimeter. They would use it for track and field. So I literally got to go. I just had to cover it for three hours. And it was like the whole track team practice together in different areas. And I would just do rotations and be like, I want to go see this sport. I want to go see this sport. And the hammer throw and uh, the shot put were two of the things that interested me most because they were to the outsider that doesn't know much about it, which was me. It didn't look like much. And then I saw the coaching that went through and how they broke down all the movements into their these micro components that I didn't even know were there to tie together into the movement. And then you're like, wow, this is way more complex. The level that they go into to coach different positions and elements and um, awareness was, I was like, this is blowing my mind. This is crazy how complex this is. Yeah. Yeah. This you ever look cool. at an athlete, uh, an athlete named Koji Murofushi? Okay. His father was a Japan Japanese champion hammer thrower, and his mother was a Romanian champion javelin thrower. Yeah, so he's he's designed. Yeah, to he's do those just things. born to throw, and that's literally I think that's what they call him is born to throw. Cool. And uh, when he does the hammer throw, because he's not he's outweighed by everyone else by 40, 50 pounds. Wow. But he's so fast, and he has so much control and efficiency, and he won a gold medal in the Olympics. Wow. This is way back, like maybe yeah, twenty yeah. years ago. But cool. Uh, just an incredible athlete and watching him throw it's just like that is definitely something yeah Yeah, it's like art it's like they're expressing an artful form of movement they just happen to be throwing something very heavy at an extreme distance like it is yeah it's the more you it's like any sport i think too because i did you know part of the fellowship was i worked with a hockey team and i never played i grew up in uh, i lived in australia i never ended up playing hockey because rugby was just a more accessible sport hockey wasn't even there so i never really played hockey at a high level Never knew much about hockey. I did this fellowship with an OHL team. I literally had to stare at a hundred games in, in 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 one season, 
And I developed a way bigger respect for the sport of hockey just because then I started to understand it, right? It's kind of like the average person that looks at a powerlifter is like, oh, yeah, well, all they're doing is lifting weight up and down off the ground. It's like, well, there's a lot more going on. And once you get into it, you realize the nuances and the skill. And at the highest level, you look at it with a totally different perspective where you're like, oh, my God, that is insane that that person can do that. It might not be a huge range of movement, but the amount of biomechanics and force production needed to move that weight, even that short distance, is insane. Yeah, I, I used to, I used to respect weightlifting a lot more than powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Even when I was powerlifting, I was like, weightlifting's way cooler. Like, yeah. Even when I was number one in the world powerlifter, yeah. I was still respecting weightlifting more. But as I kept struggling, so you were number one in the world in powerlifting uh, for two and a half years on powerliftingwatch.com. What yeah, at two twenty? At two twenty? That is insane. At, uh, at two twenty raw. And just to give people an idea, what were your numbers at that point? So powerlifting uh, is. Bench press, squat, and deadlift for just in case people aren't aware of that. Um, and then, so at 220, and were you cutting to 220 or was that your... No, I, I was always a light 220. Okay. I was like 226, 227. So just like cool. a really... So it was an easy cut. Very easy cut. And how did they cut? Did they cut day before or day of competition? 24-hour weigh-in, just like okay. fighting. Yeah. Cool. Um, some some federations do two-hour weigh-ins. Okay. But, uh, all the federations I competed in were 24-hour weigh-ins. What do you think of the two-hour um, weigh-ins? What is that? Is that just different? Like, it's just a different dynamic to have to play with? Or do you like it better or worse? I think if they're going to be going off of co- coefficients to figure out who the best lifter is, because mm-hmm. they do, like, the the most popular one is called the Wilkes coefficient. Yeah. I think if you're going to go off of Wilkes coefficients, you should just weigh the person before the first squat. Yeah. Right? I think so too. Like if, if that's what you're going off of, if we're going by weight classes, um, then I think that you just make sure the person within 24 hours is in that weight class. Mm-hmm. But if we're trying to figure out who the best lifter is according yeah. to body weight, then let's, uh, let's hold everyone, you know, Accountable. stricter because it's more pure, right? Like you mm-hmm. get rid of the variable of how you manage weight in terms of cutting it and then, and then basically restoring your ability to not be dehydrated is a factor in how people perform. So if you want to take that variable out and just get a pure metric of how strong is this human, I, I think, yeah. yeah, weighing right before. Cause like, uh, and this one I started realizing that I needed to gain weight was, was at uh, this one competition, rum seven, raw unity meet seven. I was competing against Dan green. And it was right when Dan was really like just exploding. Like he had passed me and he was just, the biggest thing on the scene in powerlifting. He helped the yep. sport grow a lot. Cool. Um, but I was like, so how much do you weigh right now? Like, you look huge. He's like, 256. We're competing against each other in the two, 220 weight class. What? Yeah, I was like 226, 228. Wow. And uh, he was like 256. And Cade... <laughs> Cade, who was lifting in the two forty two class, was two hundred fifty two pounds. So, so he's like, he's like, insane. what? You weigh more than me? And how and far was, was like, this yeah. out of competition? Like how? No, this is during the competition. What? This is like after squats while we're benching, warming up for the bench. I was like, how does that even make sense? I don't even understand that. Huge cut, man. Huge, wow. Huge recomp. So after that's when I decided that I needed to uh, to really start gaining weight because I just didn't care at the start. Uh, I didn't care. Like, I was too much of a purist when I first got into powerlifting. I was like, whatever, I'm just here to lift weights and be as strong as I can. Yeah. Even when I went to, to Russia to compete at the World Championships there in my second competition, um, I was in the, the warm-up area, so I weighed 227, mm-hmm. um, so, but I was, in the two, so I was in the 242 weight class. Okay. I didn't cut weight. I didn't. I was like, whatever. I just came to lift weights. I wanted yeah. to see who, the best lifters in the world. Yeah. I, I didn't know how I would do, so I didn't really care. And I'm in the back room, and I'm looking at all the guys, and I'm like, man, these guys are monsters. Who are these guys? And this one guy walks by. His name's Andrew Kissel, this okay. Ukrainian bodybuilder. 
Okay. He's about, he's about five, seven, five, eight, 240 pounds. Okay. Willie's like, he's in the 220 weight class. I'm like, wow. What? He's, huge. <laughs> he's like, yeah, all these guys you're looking at are in the weight class below you. That's and I'm insane. like, whoa, who are the 242 guys? Yeah. <laughs> so he like named the couple guys that he knew and he's like there. I'm like, whoa, those guys, probably mammoth. It was like, those guys are like 260, you know, it's like, that's crazy. So, uh, just kind of blew my mind right yeah. there, but I still didn't care for the longest time. Yeah. Um, you just want, you just like lifting. You want to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lifting's fun. Like I said, I like training more than I, yeah. Right. But, uh, but anyway, but it's still nice to have the barometer, right? When you train, you're like, I want to see where my yardstick measures up to other people or see what's, what is the potential? What are the best people in the world doing? Whether or not that's your goal is to compete against them and beat them. But it's like, I want to see what the, I, like that probably gets you pumped up when you see a dude move huge amounts of weight and you're like, okay, okay. I see what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and that's definitely with social media that, that effect has definitely mm-hmm. had its, uh, its toll on a lot of people now because strength yeah. is getting insane out there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not – yeah, and I think it's – most people don't use it in the right context, right? They see, like, the best lifts or the most impressive lifts, but they also don't see, like – they don't even have – I don't even think the level of training you have to do to compete at that at that elite level is even on people's radar or something that's, like, humanely possible. So I think people see – I think what social media does is it lets you see the result without seeing – without even understanding what goes into creating that result. Yes, yeah, there, there's a lot – yeah, there's a lot of work that a lot of people put in. Some people have this sheer talent, and then they get all the help. Like you mm-hmm. look at guys like Larry Wheels. Yep, pure talent, like so much genetic, so much, uh, just so many things lined up for him. Yeah, and he was super strong, but he wasn't necessarily there in his headspace. Like the mm-hmm. first time I ever competed against him, we we're in the same weight class, going head to head, and he pulled out. He quit mm-hmm. because he just wasn't feeling strong. And yeah. to me, I looked at that and I'm like, he's just young. That's a mental breakdown. He's yeah. like a puppy who hasn't grown into his paws. He doesn't know what he is yet. What year was that? What, uh, how long ago was that? That would have been maybe 2013, 2014. So did you just know when you saw that guy lift, you were just like, something is special there? Because that guy's a savage. Yeah, but we were, but, but at the time, but at the time, the, uh, the assessment of him yeah. was he might not ever be good because he right. doesn't have it mentally. Yeah. And that's like a serious rate limiting step. Yeah. Cause like he literally like quit and then he did like his opener squat and then he just dropped out. Hmm. It's like, you traveled here, you did all this and you're quitting the meat. Like, come yeah. on, man. Like yeah. show people like, yeah. and, and the thing is, even with his squat, not being where he wanted his bench was so big. He's, he actually, he would have at least been close to what I got at that competition anyways, mm-hmm. if not beat me. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause like he, he was just that big and strong. Yeah. Um, but, how did you uh, develop? So powerlifting is one of those sports. That's a prime example. Like the, the fear of your own mind, right? Like the, the mental element of training, you need a certain level of obviously physical capacity, right. And a knowledge of training and the, and the, the discipline and desire. But how did you, hone the mental side was this just something that you developed at an early age from from just being obsessed about something when you got into it or was there like did you literally have any mentally specific training that you did that you found really helpful or was this just something that is just developed over time with a patience and understanding that that's a you know knowing that that's an element uh i don't know i mean martial arts has definitely like left a huge imprint on me um i would say that the thing and I also, you know who else I actually really love is Tony Robbins. <laughs> yes. Powerful I'm, Tony Robbins. I'm huge on Tony Robbins. I grew up with that stuff. But uh, but I think like with powerlifting, it's just, it's the constant, like I call it mastering the weights. 
So how I used to train is I would do lots of singles with the, with the same weight over and over and over until I was comfortable with it. And then the next day I just add a little bit more weight, like the most linear progression you can think of. Hmm. Um, so I, I always got comfortable with weights, but what happens with that is it becomes like a, an insecurity kind of thing. Uh, because I noticed in hindsight, looking back in my younger, my younger days of powerlifting, I always had to lift heavy. I always had to let myself know I could still lift it. Yeah. Right. And it's just, and it's, it's so insecure. And I see it with guys that I coach who always want to lift heavy all the time. Like guys, you don't need to lift heavy. Yeah. You don't need to lift heavy to There's be strong. Time and place. Yeah. It's like, we only really need that in the taper. We don't need to risk injury. We don't mm-hmm. need to max out all the time. And uh, young guys don't get it. Young guys don't feel the pain. So they don't really realize the risk involved because they haven't had those big injuries before. Yeah. But, uh, but that that was that was pretty much how I trained. I always thought of it as mastering things, kind of like you master a movement. Because when I was growing up playing basketball, you know, you start off, you know, you get your beef set, balance eyes, elbows, flick and follow through. But you start a foot from the net. Yeah. And you hit two it's swishes, gradual. two swishes, then you're allowed to move back. Yeah. Two swishes, move back until you're at the three point line. Okay, cool. Now you've mastered every single. You know what I mean? Yep. And it was I, I, t- I had that exact same concept stepping into powerlifting. So. You, you got to be perfect with everything and then you keep adding weights. But, and I, and I think even the term mastery implies, um, almost a sense of patience where you're like, I'm, I'm trying to master something. I understand that this, like, it's a long game you're playing, right? It's yeah. mastery. It's, it's consistent improvement. Like Kaizen constant incremental improvement. Um, I think that term is just like, everyone wants to get to the finish line as quick as possible. And I think it, the people that are doing the big, the, the, the most amazing feats are people that I think have that mastery perspective where it's like, I'm going to do this the way it should be done and not the way that it's going to get me there the quickest. Yeah. A saying that you'll, you'll really like, do you know, who Sean Mosin is uh, a Gatsu. Yes. So he because, has, a, yeah. he has a saying. It's one of my favorite sayings. It's a uh, master of monotony. Yes, I've Ma- seen that before. I think you posted something I've about posted that. it before. Yes, yeah, masters yeah. like masters are masters of monot- monotony, yep. and it's it's just about fundamentals. That's hilarious because right. when I saw you post that was the time that like when I was I was working on like my balance, my hip stability on the beam, and when I saw that post, I spent way more time on just single leg, one leg balance, the, the easiest progressions on a balance beam. I spent triple the amount of time doing that, and all of the other things became easier. And I realized the simplest stuff that is the most almost i don't want to say mindless because it is you know a lot of things are very mindful but the simplest things mastering those gives you the confidence to approach other things and actually builds your the base of your pyramid so that the bigger things are actually way way easier when you do it but but it's not by doing the big things or the really it's not by lifting heavy it's by lifting consistently doing the right weights being disciplined with it with even the light stuff right grooving a pattern being relentless with the pursuit of perfection of the basics the yes. easiest shit where people are like that's easy i don't want to do that anymore and everyone wants the sexy stuff the stuff that looks cool or is amazing but it's like yeah but that person that can do the amazing stuff like i guarantee jordan sat three feet from the net and just plowed through shots before he you know like it's people don't see that side yeah we hear like we hear about kobe bryant how he would like shoot for hours and hours before yeah. games like all this crazy psychotic kind of things yeah. but it's like that's what you need to so get that's, to there. <laughs> that's that's why he's cool that's why he was so good yeah um so i have these i have a few clients that i've helped a lot with knee pain and hip pain mm-hmm. and they couldn't stand and hold one leg up at 90 degrees they couldn't balance like this like yeah. just one leg up and uh and i i like to use a wobble board and the balance beam at my gym but mm-hmm. they no chance of doing that so i tried the wobble board with the stick whatever yep no 
So you know what I had them do? Every morning when you get up and when you're brushing your teeth, stand, stand on, on stand on one leg and make the alphabet with your other foot. Interesting. Yeah, A, B, C, D. Yeah. Just make the alphabet. One of the guys, this military guy, he said, every morning I get up and I, when I go downstairs to the kitchen, my knees hurt. After doing this, his mm-hmm. knees stopped hurting. Interesting. Yeah, and I was like, wow, that's great. And I had, uh, so I had these, uh, so I had, I had these two other women who also couldn't hold their legs up. And I just had them do that. And now, like, they're now on the rock solid. Yeah, like, it's funny because, like, one of them sent me a video on Instagram sh- showing herself standing on a wobbling board with one leg. And I'm like, cool. Like, what's up? <laughs> and I forgot that I told, like, I just forgot. Right, right, right. These forgot com- where she started. So many of these conversations, yeah. right? And she's like, no, like, I couldn't even stand on the floor like this, remember? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but it's like she kept it up. And uh, it's the people who who really are able to do those things that do reap the benefits. Because for sure. if you just want to go zero to a hundred, but you have something wrong, it's never going to get fixed. And some people still don't get that. And the um, amount of people that um, like we see in the clinic that come in and they're you hear their whole repertoire of like these are all the activities they're doing. So you start with we do subjective first, so they tell you their story, and then you watch them move. And I, I always found it very curious how big of a disconnect there sometimes would be. Someone comes in and they're like, yeah, I work out five times a week at Greco. I do boot camp every Saturday and I run four days a week. They're like, okay, wow, that's that's a big activity load. Like, let's see how you move. Can't even stand on one leg for 30 seconds. I'm like, wait a minute. So running is all a single leg activity, not just under one time body weight. It's under three and a half times. You can't even demonstrate to me that you have enough stability to stand on one leg for 30 seconds. And yet you're doing all of this. I'm surprised you even have knee joints left. Mm -hmm. Like it's just crazy how adaptable and how mentally people can overcome pain. Like runners are the runners are psychos. Like they're just so motivated and driven. And I think that sometimes they're kryptonite. You know, it's just like the guy that always likes to lift heavy and just works through the discomfort thinking that that's normal. But it's like, eventually that will stop you from lifting. Eventually you will not be able to run. And it's the person that's running 30 kilometers a week doesn't want to be told they have to learn how to balance on one leg. It's almost like a knock to their pride where they're like, I do this. I'm not going to do this. This is, this is child's play. It's like, that's, what's limiting you from, that's why you're here. Yeah. And, and that's, and and that, that, that like literally like I, I like the term white belt mentality. Yeah. And it's like, you (laughs) just got to embrace that white belt mentality. Like you're coming, if you're coming to someone for help, be a white belt. Yeah. Or, or like, don't ask someone for advice if you're going to like, if you're not shut, ready to take it. Yeah. Yep. It's like, listen to what they say. Have, you know, you know, be open-minded, have an active mind about it. Question them if you like, but yep. understand like you're going to them for help. Otherwise they yep. wouldn't be talking to you right now. And I think that's the key um, is like uh, at seminars, I always tell people, don't believe anything I say. Just be open-minded to trying this stuff and prove to yourself that that is what can work or can help you. Because at the end of the day, you can only prove something to yourself. And yeah. I think you know, too many times people go in with the shutters on and they're like, I'm coming to see you for help, but I really already know what I want to hear. And if you don't tell me what I want to hear, I don't want to work with you. And it's like, well, that's the wrong, like we're not, this isn't going to be a good relationship. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the exact same thing with a coach. Yeah. yeah Cause I, you're I, there I, to tell people what they don't want to hear. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes like I, I've tried to push away. Like I don't take online. Cl- I only like having like three to five online guys at a time because yep. I take a lot of time with them. I form relationships with them. I keep the training very organic. I don't just like, here's an Excel. Oh, so you do things properly. Yeah. That's I'm like, weird. I'm not like, here's an Excel file. Come back to me in two weeks. And yeah. I like to see every, every working, not every working set, but a working set every day. And mm-hmm. I like to talk to them. So it's very time consuming. And there was this one guy and I looked at his videos and I hate his squat. <laughs> I hate it. Like it's horrendous. Like, everything, <laughs> everything, you know, but he's strong. Yeah. 
and he likes being strong and he's jacked and whatever. So I'm looking at it and I had, and I told him straight up, I'm like, I'm happy to work with you. This is how I do it. These are my prices, blah, blah, blah. But I'm going to tell you right now, you are not going to like anything I want to do with your squat. I want to, I want to step it back a lot and I want to work on a lot of little things. And, and what he, happened? Where he's signing up. Cool. But, uh, but he, I was just like, I got to tell you this, man, you are not gonna like it yeah and, and that's important uh, to let people know the expectation because it's like if they go in and think it's all gonna be sunshine and rainbows and you're just gonna tell them that they're really strong and and give them a couple tips then they have to know what's up or yeah. else they get into it and they're like oh, this is what i signed up for right like yeah. i always tell people in a physio assessment you're doing the work i'm guiding you on what work you need to do if you're not prepared to put in the work and I, like this isn't gonna be easy if you want easy go get an ultrasound stuck on you and pay a bunch of money that's fine it's totally yeah. up to you. but i'm here to get you better and I'm doing that by getting you to understand what you need to do. I don't fix you. You fix yourself. I'm just here to guide you. I'm not going to have all the answers, but we're going to troubleshoot together so that you know the shit you need to do. And more importantly, the shit you need to not do to make this easy for you, um, to make this process more straightforward and more simple. And I think when people know the expectation, you automatically only work with people that you know will benefit from, from working yeah. with them. Yeah. So I don't know if you saw my post. I just, I feel like I got to give this guy a shout out now. Did you see the posts of a, a Instagram story? I posted of a guy deadlifting 500 pounds. I didn't. Hanny. So this guy, Hanny came in maybe 18, 20 months ago mm-hmm. and soccer player, um, soccer and, uh, cycling soccer player, oh, fi- 500 fi- pounds. So just listen though. So he walked in super flat footed, knock need, uh, T spine, internal rotation like everything wrong like guy like works at a computer all the time okay i was gonna ask what he does for work because i can almost guess that yeah he uh so he goes to squat and i'm like okay this guy can't even he couldn't even hold the bar on his back okay um so he can't even doesn't even have the mobility to put the bar on his back and can't squat anywhere close to depth right uh deadlift two plates the most horrible deadlift i had ever seen (laughs) almost wanted to tell him to put the bar down because it was too risky yeah so for the first like six to nine months of his training, does he live in Ottawa? Like you were yes. in person. Okay. He, he, he came into dynamo all the time and trained, but he was relegated to a trap bar deadlift at a, like raised at the start. Like, <laughs> okay. Okay. Because he couldn't keep himself straight. He yep. couldn't load his, his muscles. It was all in his lower back and everything. Cause his T-spine was so round. So he was relegated to that and Zerker squats. Right. And yep. doorway squats like to the, the squat rack with like a beam in front of his face to help him stay upright, to help his body neurologically like learn the movement. Yep. And, uh, and he was doing that all the time. And I let him do other stuff like, you know, like bodybuilding type stuff to make him feel like he's putting on some muscles. Yep. And, uh, but he did this forever. And then he started, then I let him work to like a cambered, uh, safety squat bar and then a cambered bar. And, uh, and maybe, Maybe about nine months ago, we started deadlifting. And uh, and after a few weeks of deadlifting, we got him up to four plates. Wow. And I looked at him and I was like, Hanny, I never, I never, no offense, I never even thought I would ever see you deadlift four plates. Before. <laughs> when you wow. came in here and you said you wanted to get stronger, you wanted to put on muscle, I was kind of like, okay, well, we'll see what we can do. Because he's like yeah. an ectomorph and he's got all these issues, right? So I'm like, oh, we'll he see a good what student? he does. He's a good Very student. good student. He's yeah. just a white belt. And the thing is, he had never trained before his entire life. Um, so you basically get a blank slate. Yeah. And then and then I was like, okay, so let's uh, so let's get you on some chains now that you did 400. So I had him deadlifting on chains. And we did a whole bunch of other things. Started building his squat. And the guy squatted, I think he did, uh, what did he do recently? Maybe like four triples at 340 on a cambered bar in the squat. Wow. wow. Uh, 
and uh and he and then he deadlifted that 500 and i was like blown away i was like hanny like you're like <laughs> like you're strong now you're like, like a proud father like yeah like that's amazing man and like all the other guys in the gym were like holy like we were all going nuts and they're like hanny like i i don't know how you did all that a lot of the guys were like i would have quit if jay made me do this i would have walked out i would have quit i would have been like fuck jay yeah it's like fucking zerker squats <laughs> fuck this bullshit trap bar i want to lift some fucking weights yeah but you know hanny was in there and he was doing like he's doing his wobble board he's doing his foot drills he's doing he was putting in the work yeah he's doing all the annoying stuff and he far surpassed what i thought was possible for him cool so it's just you're probably a pretty good judge of ability too you've coached enough people that for someone to sh- blow your mind is like yeah like that's an anomaly of yeah nature. like and I, i've been saying this to him almost every time i see him for the last week and a half i've been like i've been like hanny like no offense but <laughs> you're like way past what i thought and he's just always just like i don't know if i should be insulted or complimented yeah and i'm take like it, no man take like, the latter because i was like man i was just like i don't know man i'll try <laughs> you know i'll there you try, go. do my best and that seeing those people I think seeing those people progress and where they can get to makes you be like, okay, I got to expand my realm of possibility and not, and like, <coughs> I think differently about where someone is right now and where they can get to. Like, that's just a, that's a, a piece of data that went into your system and was like, okay, I got to reset the way I think about what people are capable of. And cause I, I've done, I've done this before many times in clinic, someone comes in and their movement patterns are a disaster and it affects the way you underestimate their true potential for improvement because you're just like, oh, this is going to take a while. I'm going to give you basic stuff. And then they come in and you're like, wow, I, I probably should have given you more because you you crushed that. And it's like there are anomalies that actually take every piece of advice and are listening to your every word, not because they actually want to implement it because they're obsessed about improving. Like the podcast I did with Mike this morning, we talked about how when people are obsessed with improvement and mastery and take it from the point of view of like in order for him to continue and be consistent with that stuff he would have had to find some sort of pleasure in doing the annoying stuff mm-hmm. he would have like I, I think there's something to be said about that where it's like i have to do this whether it's a, and i've tried to do this lately to shift my perspective it's like bookkeeping or accounting prime example it's so annoying it's so monotonous and it's such a pain in the ass usually i was just like you know what i have to do this anyway i'm gonna find a way to find a challenge or some sort of enjoyment in this. And I think that's a pattern that I see in these patients that are just obsessed about. It. They're like, yeah, I just found a way to enjoy this because I had to do, I knew I had to do it. I found a way to enjoy 90, because before I hated it and I still don't really like it, but I found a way to enjoy it. Yeah. I think, I think for me, one of the things that has really helped with that aspect of personal growth and self-development is really looking at the, the concept of sacrifice and dissecting it. And sacrifice is such a stupid word. Mm-hmm. When people say they sacrificed things, I like, I kind of just want to, I want to a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It just kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. It's like, no, you didn't sacrifice it. You didn't sacrifice anything. You wanted yeah. to do this. Yes. You know, like you didn't sacrifice any of these meals to lose weight. You prioritize. You want to lose weight. Yes. Prioritize much yeah. stronger word, mm-hmm. but you want to lose weight. Mm-hmm. You're not sacrificing relationships with people. You're choosing prioritizing this yeah. over that and, it's all perspective. Sh- and at the end of the day you should only do things that are net benefits for you in my opinion yeah. right i only believe in net benefits if something do- and doesn't have to be materially you mm-hmm. know what i mean but if something doesn't make you feel better or progress you or have any sort of benefit then you shouldn't do it and that is when because by definition that's when it's a loss that's when it's a yeah you know what I mean, right that's when it's a sacrifice and i i think you we talked about this in the in the nutrition podcast we did 
the net benefit calculation requires you to extrapolate beyond that period of time, yes. right? So, so the net benefit, if your time scale is 30 minutes of eating a full cake, is pretty damn high. But the net benefit, if you extrapolate that to 36 hours and you feel like shit and you don't sleep very well and you the shit you take is disastrous and you feel terrible, the net benefit all... So people just have to... I think people have to expand their, their unit of measurement because then they get a much more accurate display of net benefit, right? Like if your net benefit is one day and the training session you just did was grueling and it destroyed you versus the net benefit is six months and in six months you just achieved the goal you wanted to, to achieve but every single day, the net of any every day might be negative but the net overall, and it's not even negative, it's the same thing, a matter of perspective change but, but you're right and I think when people reevaluate that, it might be a relationship. Is the net benefit, am I, you know, it's not always about benefiting personally, but like, am I in a relationship that is not healthy for me? And I think part of it is just, you have to go down to what does this do for me? Am I enjoying this relationship? Am I, am I someone that someone's getting way more net benefit and I'm getting a net negative? Like people just have to expand their measurement unit. Sorry, yeah. that was a really long way of saying No, that. no, it makes sense. It's just in a situation like that, if you have someone who's dragging you down, for example, but yeah. you're trying to help them. At the time, and, and this just goes with the time constraints, short-term, long-term, it might feel like a net, uh, a negative, mm-hmm. right? It's a negative because this person's dragging you down. But if you know you can build that person back up, yeah. and maybe in the future they might help you if you ever exactly. fall down, then then that is, that is a net benefit. It's like having an insurance yep. policy. It's an investment in a friend because that's what friends are, right? Um, and you having helped them and them improving is also part yeah. of your net benefit. Yeah, because right? in situations like that, I look at like we all we all have friends who have been in situations. We all have friends who have other friends that they're trying to help and they don't know what to do. They come to you for advice. And, yep. and uh, it, to me, it's just as soon as that person is going to start being a negative and you don't think that the positive sides of helping them will be there, mm-hmm. then that's when you have to be prepared to walk away. Yep. And uh, and yeah. maybe it comes up, maybe it's only a temporary walking away. Like maybe that person realizes what they were doing and it was you walking away that makes them reflect and be like, I have to do this differently. I have to be better, have a better relationship with this person. So it's not permanent, but you're right. Like calling it and, and just knowing that you have to have your net life has to be positive and you have to just sometimes make hard decisions that maybe it's someone you love that you're spending a lot of time with, but you're finding that it's not contributing in a positive way to your life don't cut ties with them but maybe modify things so that you you equalize the balance a little bit yes. and i think it's hard to the most important decisions like that are also usually the most difficult ones because there's way more variables involved than just a straight up is this good or is this bad it's like it's busy always it's a busy situation and you just sometimes you need someone to just bounce ideas off of and those people are important and i think we've gotten away like you can't get that you, those people aren't on social media. They're not your, your, they're not your Instagram friends. They're your like human friends. They're your family. And I think that like our reliance on technology is taking away our ability to actually have meaningful social relationships. And I think it's a big problem on the side of just mental health. Like people don't know how to navigate this world because it's brand new. And you see people that are just lost and they just, you know, without claiming that you have all the answers, you can kind of just like try and be better at helping people navigate this confusing world of social media or, or, just technology in general is so it's a crazy world (laughs) it's a very very crazy world yeah so speaking of technology um so you have you've been working a while i remember i remember the first time you you mentioned the project that you're working on was it might have even been a year ago and i'm sure you've been working on it for longer than that but um 
you know, t- tell me a little bit about the about the project you're working on, this app you're working on. So we're on an app called MetroLife. Uh, it's uh, it's basically just an education tool for helping people measure, manage, and adjust their lifestyle metrics cool. to improve health and performance. What gets measured gets changed and addressed. Right, because in, in all life, we want to track variables. Uh, we want to have statics and dynamics, and we want to see which ones have are, are more likely to lead towards certain outcomes. Like mm-hmm. What kind of trajectories are we looking at? So that's what we're doing. There's a lot of devices out there, such as you know, Fitbits, Apple Watches, Aura Rings, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all these different things that are tracking objective measures. But they're also not tracking a lot of subjective measures and they're not comparing all of these things. They're not finding relationships between all of these things. So Ah, so you're kind of creating an ecosystem for all these sensors to be able to talk to each other is that part that of it? yes and there, there's a lot of components in the app uh there's a lot of different things going on it's a very thick app it's very hard to explain without a video to people at a superficial um, level what would be the biggest re- what what big problem and we can start like very general what big problem does the app solve the biggest problem the app would solve is people don't know what to do with all of this data ah yes people don't know what to do and then also the other the other thing is a lot of people I can tell you, you need seven to nine hours of sleep, mm-hmm. right? And you know that you've read that you have why we sleep book up there. You can yeah. read that and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So let's say you start tracking your sleep and you're tracking your deep sleep, your REM sleep, you're tracking all different types of sleep, but you're also tracking your mood, your appetite, what your training sessions are like, um, tons of different variables, right? Mm-hmm. And then you start noticing relationships. So on mine, uh, on, in my app, I, I've created a bunch of little favorite things to track together to find relationships. And one of the relationships that I like to track is just sleep duration, sleep quality, mood, and focus. Hmm. And those things all track well over 80% consistently, wow. which I find fascinating. So I know that if I don't get at least seven hours of sleep, I'm going to be different, mm-hmm. right? Like I knew that if I got eight hours of sleep, uh, before I came and talked to you, I would be wired and I would be talking. Yep. I would have a lot to say. Unfortunately, my son's been very sick. <laughs> okay. so I'm, You're pretty I'm not, on it right now. Yeah, so I'm not, I just haven't been sleeping very well, so I don't feel as connected. But, uh, but that's the thing is when I can see it, so yeah. I can see this on a graph. I can see things, how, or how they're traveling. Now I've made the, the association. And the power of association is one of the most important things because we all think before we act. Right. We like to think in theory, <laughs> in theory, we should all think before we act. And as we get older, we get better at it and we become more responsive than reactive. But how we act is very de- determined by our thoughts. And we are going to think a lot better about these things when we have better associations, just like you're talking about short term versus long term. Right. That deferred gratification of not eating right now mm-hmm. versus in the future. People have those when they see what happens. Right. I know now from like all the years back in 2009 when I was keto that when my insulin sensitivity is good, if I eat a piece of cake, I will feel like shit. Yeah. Like I I will, I will get tired and I'll just want to take a nap. Like it hits me hard. So I don't want the cake. So when people are like, why don't you want cake? Like in my head, I'm like, cause it's shit, you know, but it's like, I actually just don't want it. And you have context to where it's not just mouth pleasure anymore. It's mouth pleasure with a net negative in terms of the consequences that most people, it's one of these things with food. No one associates the bad aspects. They think that, oh, I just feel lazy today or I feel defocused, but they don't look at what did I eat two hours ago that's making me do this? They don't make that connection. I think that's a very powerful missing element in terms of diet. And back to your thing about just creating associations, I heard a very powerful quote by um, Yuval Harari. I think he's the guy that wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus. 
He said, in the age of information, information is no longer power. Clarity is power because we're bombarded with information. So each of these data points, your data point from your Fitbit, how you feel, these are all like little pixels. And if you have a thousand pixels, but you can't draw a picture with it, the pixels are useless. It's just a mess. But if you have something that can help you create a picture out of those pixels, all of a sudden those pixels are actually useful because they create a picture. And hopefully you can learn something from that picture that allows you to do another set of experiments with yourself to just try and improve how you feel. Everyone wants to feel good. No one wants to be sick. No one wants to feel like shit. But you're right. People are lost. We have all this, these data metrics and we get all this data, but we have no idea what to do with it. And I think that's one thing is the speed of data collection and tools we have to collect data are increasing at such a pace that it's outpacing our ability to use that data usefully. Yes. And I think in some cases, it's actually replacing our ability to collect the data naturally. And I think there's a, a very fine balance. It's like, I always tell people, if you want to use a sleep tracker, that's fine. Use a sleep tracker so that you can get some form of concrete feedback that you can then integrate in terms of intuitive feeling, right? So that you know, you know, maybe you're always going to use that, but you shouldn't just rely, you shouldn't say, I wonder if I get a good sleep or not. Well, I'm going to look at my Fitbit. It's like at the start, it might be that, but then it's like, I feel pretty good. I feel high energy. I know I was in bed from this time. I think I slept pretty good. Let me double check. Oh yeah, I did sleep good. So it's using technology to re-ingrain this like intuitive sense of knowing how your body works and feeling how your body works, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in terms of what you did with it. And I think that's important to, to know that these technologies are important, but they also, you don't want them to replace your intuitive sense of what your machine is doing just by feeling. Yeah. So, yeah, but, uh, cool. Yeah, so, so I'm I'm really excited about it. There's it's there's so many things going on. Like we have different scores and weekly and monthly reports that people could get. So if you're looking after your clients, you get reports on how all these metrics are going mm. with them. So it's like a different le- level of coaching too. There, yeah, there's there's a lot going on in in both in both health and in performance cool. aspects. So where are you at with that? Is there is it out? Is it a beta? Is it what's the uh, what's we're just the finishing up beta testing right now. We're probably going to release uh, maybe mid May. Cool. Yeah, so it's pretty exciting. There's yeah, oh, I'm pretty excited about nice. it. Nice. Yeah, it's just hard. It's hard it's to a talk long about time because the making, so many right? things going on. Nice, but uh, yeah, well, we'll do another podcast. Like I don't know, maybe in June, and you, we can kind of re up and say, you know, what's changed, what's different, um, how was the launch, what have you learned? Because it's it's one of those things where like, if you have an app, you you, you know, you're able to process so much data, and, and if you have a good feedback mechanism involved, people tell you will tell you exactly what they want to make it better. That's the beautiful thing about technology that the improvement cycles are so much shorter now because you can communicate to people directly or have it embedded in the app that it's like, okay, I'm just going to create a feature of this app that forces it to get better as time goes on based on the feedback we get. Right. So I think that'd be super cool to see where that goes. And I'm looking forward to just trying it out and seeing, seeing what it is. Yeah. So cool. Congrats on that. Cause I know it's, it's like something I think people think very simplistically when you say app, they're like, Oh yeah, you just design it and you put it on there. It's like, yeah, it's not that No, easy. especially something this complex, you have to make it very usable. Mm-hmm. Like you have to make the user interface very uh, intuitive so that people yeah. can really s- understand what they have to do. Cause right now there's so many things going on. It's such a thick app that there's certain aspects of the app. People don't even know exist. And then when we show it to them, they're like, oh, wow, like, yeah, I didn't know you could do that. That's amazing. It's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. How do we make it so that people know? Yeah, it's like, exists? it's cool. Yeah. But I'm kind of worried now because you didn't even know that and you've been using it for two weeks. So <laughs> but you know what? If they're getting value just by using the the like superficial layer of it, then it just yeah. it's almost well, not a bad thing because then they 
as they start to digest it and understand it, they can discover these deeper layers of complexity. Whereas if they were, if all that was thrown at them in the first place, they might be like, holy shit, I don't know how to use this thing. Yeah. And, and that's one thing we're working on because it's a very versatile app. We've made it so that you can do, you can track pretty much anything. Hmm. It's like uh, one of the largest components of this app is mental health. Hmm. Uh, we have a, a lot of mental health stuff going in there, but people don't have to use it. So you can use it for training, you can use it for mental health, you can use it for marathons, you can use it for yoga, you can use it for cognitive behavioral therapy. There's cool. so many different things that are going on. Um, so it's it's a very customizable, uh, it's very customizable app, which is very cool. And that's a, and I would imagine that for to allow for you know second, third, tenth layer customizability, you have to build a pretty robust, you know, template at the bottom, the right. the, the base operating layer to allow all this all these layers to be added on probably has to be pretty damn yeah. rock solid. Yes. And that's, I feel, yeah. Cause we're going through that right now. Like I think the, the, the best ecosystem for the foot collective eventually is an app. That's where things are going. That's the most, if you have a good ability to design a good interface, you know, right now we have a, a shop website, place where people go get seminars, place where people go get information, but it all should reside. If it, if you create an ecosystem that has everything together and marries it together, um, and makes it easy to use the user usability uh, for people. I think it's just the biggest thing that that stops apps from either doing well or being used. It's just how easy is it to use? People just, you know, usability is a massive factor in whether people actually take full advantage of your features. You might have the best features in the world, but if people don't know how to use it and it's complex, it might not be used to its full extent, or people might get not get the full benefit out of it. So, mm -hmm. cool. Um, okay, last thing to talk about. Um, I, you're not the kind of guy that someone would, well, I, I should stop saying that. That's silly. Um, you're, you're a very deep thinker in terms of, um, how involved you are or how, how much of a student you are of philosophy. So where did that, where did this start? Because I, you know, I always tell people like, I like to think I like philosophy, but I know very little about it. And it's like this constant thing where for some reason it's getting the back burner to learning other things when really understanding better that realm better allows me to consume all the other knowledge much more efficiently so what got you into this and where did you go first with it what you just said is very important so yeah the how i got in is uh, it's not philosophy it's thinking mm -hmm. right it's thinking that i like uh i'm not a person who has ever really just accepted things yeah like i, I i'm like traditions, like if someone talks about marriage, I'm like, well, what is marriage? Yeah. Like, what is marriage? Like, if you don't believe in God, what is marriage? Yeah. If you don't really care about the government, what is marriage? Because mm -hmm. without government, without God, what is marriage? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, what is the institution? So, like, yep. so I, I always question traditions. Break and it stuff. down and say, like, what does this actually mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and my entire life, I've always, so I went to a Catholic school, so I've always had trouble with religion. And even when I was bobsledding, uh, a lot of the people from Eastern Canada, uh, sorry, from Central Canada who were on the team were extremely religious. My pilot, Lyndon Rush, was extremely religious. Like, mm -hmm. he believed in demons. And, like, when he, you know, when people are sick, he's like, yeah. I, I genuinely believe in demons. Yeah. Like, like, exorcism and stuff. I'm like, okay. Like, so I, like, read the Bible. You're on the mountain a lot. I'm reading the Bible. I really sincerely tried my best. Yep. And I convinced myself that I loved Jesus and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But I just couldn't. Like yeah. it, it just couldn't, it just felt like I was lying yep, and felt forced. Yeah. And then like in school, I'm studying economics and I remember my macro class, we we're talking about the money supply and the money supply. <laughs> this is a, keep going. Yeah. Sorry. And it's just, and I just, so, so I just raised my hand and, uh, 
I, f- I forget the professor's name. His, his, I just remember his English wasn't very well. He's a Chinese professor, and at Western, most of the economic students are Chinese or Indian. Yep. Uh, not very good at English. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's maybe eight out of the 250 to 300 people in the class. There's maybe oh. eight Caucasian people in the class, yep. or whatever I am. I don't know. Yep. But uh, but I raised my hand, and I, I don't understand. So So if every single Canadian or every single dollar and every single penny were turned in to pay off the debt, there would still be debt. And he's like, yes. And I was like, okay, so, you know, that means like there's always going to be interest on, on money that we, we don't have anymore because we, we can't pay this debt off anymore and there's interest on it. So I'm like, so hyperinflation is inevitable. And he looks at me and he's like, he's kind of nodding his head. And then he says, in Keynesian economics, we have a saying, in the long run, we'll all be dead. <laughs> That's hilarious. And I'm just like, yeah, but my kids. And my That's kids, not a good answer. My kids and my kids' kids won't be dead. I'm like, this is yeah. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I, went, I went home and I called my dad and I was like, dad, I don't want to go to school anymore. It's my second year. I was like, I'd rather just be a firefighter or something. I want to do something rewarding. This is bullshit. It makes no sense. Yeah. Like, I don't want to do this. And... Uh, and he convinced me to stay. He's like, you want to be a firefighter, then you should get a degree anyways. It'll make yeah. it easier to get in, blah, 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 blah. But it's just like these kind of questions. And I just remember I was like in awe because this whole class accepted it. Yeah. They, like everyone just accepted it. And I was like, oh. Like you basically asked a question that a 10-year-old would ask. Yeah. And <laughs> and what happens with that is so so aside from like always hating traditions, I have this other thing in me that's like, you know, Miyamoto Musashi, Book of Five Rings, from one thing, learn many. Right. And I learned it from chess, playing chess when I was young. And it's, it's whatever you learn. It's like immediately my brain starts scanning other places where I can apply this. Yeah. And all I was thinking was, I remember that economics thing, like, yeah, it's just, just like religion. Like people just kind of accept it, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like made more effort to, to try and get away from like looking or to start looking at all the things that need to really be questioned and to just stop it, stop accepting them now. Yeah. No more appeal to authority. It's like yeah. when the authorities are wrong and it's very blatantly obvious that what they're saying, it's like with, if you can tear down someone's entire belief in, in a certain realm with like two simple questions, why aren't more people doing that? Yeah. Why We all use money. We all use currency and the way currency is done. I have a fascination with that as well. And, and yet in my family, there's, there's people in the financial industry and I ask them questions that they can't answer and they just fluff it off as like, oh, that's not relevant. Like th- this is how it is. This is the system we work within. It's like, how deep does the system have to go? How broken does the system have to become to where you actually like question just out of curiosity? You're not trying to like challenge it for the sake of challenging it, but just be like, I'm kind of curious about this. I don't understand. I th- I think I'm pretty good at understanding things and I don't understand this. So I'm either missing something and I'm curious to, to, to fill that knowledge gap or there's a big hole in this that seems almost too strange to be real because everyone has accepted it. If you use money, you've accepted that money is done well right now. Right. Right. Yeah, and and, and to get, to get back to what we were saying, cause I said, you said something very important at the very start of this, like philosophical introduction so what is philosophy? And I think that right there is the hardest question to answer. Even people yeah. who are PhDs in philosophy wouldn't necessarily all say the same thing. But for me, what philosophy is, it's the logical clarification and clarif- it's logical clarification of ideas and their integration into your current understandings. Mm-hmm. And that is Mirroring one of the most together. important things because so many people have these contradicting 
ideas floating out there that they aren't addressing. Right. Like, so for example, and I'm not, I don't mean to bash him and just picking a person who everyone knows, Mm -hmm. but you look at like Ben Shapiro. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like Ben Shapiro. He's a political genius. Mm -hmm. Okay. Jordan Peterson, psychological genius. Yeah. In their fields, they're genius, geniuses. Philosophically, they bother the crap out of me. (laughs) Okay. Ben Shapiro, especially because he's, he always says things like philosophical consistency and intellectual integrity. Mm -hmm. Like he uses those words and he says, facts don't care about your feelings. But at the same time, he's going to go out there and he's going to spit all these, these, these facts and say like, this is why I'm always right. And he also doesn't think two men should be able to get married. I didn't know that. I, I don't listen to him that much. I, I didn't I, know that. But that gets, that gets, you know what? That gets right into exactly what I'm saying. And the same thing is with like Jordan Peterson. He's always talking about like when he was arguing against the pronouns, right? I loved him. He was a champion for that. And he kept saying, you know, science, 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 logic. He kept saying these things. But I look at these guys and neither of those guys can find a basis for morality that isn't based in religion. So if we're looking at it philosophically, we have to be philosophically, like we just said, the logical clarification of ideas. So we have to be very clear on it and we have to understand where it came from because we're integrating it with our other ideas that we already have. Mm -hmm. So if your other idea is that things should be logical and scientific and reasonable, then we have to understand that, well, if a morality is based off of a religion and religions are not in any way logical or reasonable, Mm -hmm. then your morality is a floating abstract. It's a castle resting on nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so how, so it's like, why shouldn't we kill someone? Because God said so. Well, if you can't prove that God exists and there's no reason proving that God, God exists or doesn't exist is kind of like a scientific negative. But if we're saying like, there's like, there's absolutely no reason to believe that a God exists, Mm -hmm. then that means that this reason to not kill people has zero foundation. And that's what, that's what is lacking. So they're lacking the integration of ideas. We see it on surface level things with like, People thinking about like, oh, like talking bad about sweatshops and then going and buying shirts that are made in India or, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone having their laptops and their iPhones and then talking about how they don't like certain practices around the world. And it's like, well, your iPhone would have been $5,000 if it was made in Canada, you know? So there's, there's all these little contradictions there, but when our biggest thinkers and our most popular thinkers in society have these inherent flaws in them it scares the crap out of me, mm-hmm. right? So you just said that thing about clarity and I'm like, well, these guys aren't like, they're, like I said, they're geniuses in their field. Mm-hmm. I love listening to them talk. I would love to hear that like, question asked them because, you know, the way I look at religion and I, your story is very, very similar to mine. I got to a point where I was like, this seems like it's a story. This seem, this this isn't real. Like I can't find a way to to... Essentially, I want to believe in this. Like, I think religion is a good way of stories being passed down from generation to generation to help you live in a way that is claimed by them to be moral and probably, you know, not killing other people is probably good. You know, like, I, I like a lot of the points, but it's also a story that can is open to interpretation by whoever's telling the story. And yeah. in that is a flaw because there's no basis of understanding that is understandable beyond just the story itself. Yes. Right? There's nothing, it's so hard to make sense of it when, and then you see the extrapolations of where that story is misconstrued and the, the shitty things that happen from that. And you're like, well, the shitty things that happen and the good things that happen almost negative each other out. We need a better basis for morality, to a better framework for people to think. Be People need to learn how to think better and just be evaluate things based on 
using a method, some sort of system, systematic method of using logic, of using maybe the morals that you grew up with, where it's like, don't punch someone else in the face, you know, be good, help others, all mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. It's important to know where those things came from. But inherently, I think people are like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and it's sad. Like, there, I don't know, there's so many ways to go with this. But I mean, like, we look at like, so for example, like the Daily Stoic, I see that book there. And I like Stoicism. I love the quotes. So I think they're very thought provoking and everything. But a lot of people look at Stoicism, and they call it philosophy. And to me, Stoicism is like a Olympic sized swimming pool and philosophy is an ocean. Yeah. Right. And these little memes that we see on Instagram that people put are like offering people a glass of water. Yeah. It's like, yes. it's just, it's, it's not philosophy. Yes. You're not dissecting anything. We're not deducing any logic here. There's no, there's no deductive reasoning. Um, oh, where was I going? So talking about the ocean, sto uh, stoicism. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So like with religion, I mean, when we're looking at, at, at religion and we're talking about morality, one of the biggest things that I find people say, if, if I like, I don't talk about this stuff normally because, mm -hmm. you know, it's polarizing, mm -hmm. but it's like, if I say I disagree with religion and I think it's anti-reasonable to be religious, you know, it teaches people to not think in some ways. Uh, if I say that people think that what I'm saying is all of the morals in religion are bullshit or they're wrong. Or they think you're saying you're immoral. Yeah. You're just saying what your thought process yeah, is. Yeah, but what I'm saying is I'm not saying I did like I don't disagree with all 10 commandments. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not saying that. Like you can have you can have rational ideas and rational answers and conclusions for morality. It's just that they're brought about irrationally. Yeah. Like no don't kill it. someone is a very rational thing to say, mm -hmm. but because God said so on Mount Sinai to Moses yeah, yeah. is pretty fucking irrational. You I know agree. what I mean? So I agree. it's like, well, how can we arrive at this differently? It's like, imagine you you did a math test and there's this like, you know, 2X plus X, 7YZ, blah, 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 equals solve for X. Mm -hmm. And you write the right answer. And the teacher's like, well, you got the right answer, but how did you get there? And you're mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I just guessed. Yeah. Right. And we've God all, <laughs> we, and we've all done that though. We've all done that in high school. Well, I have anyways, where yeah. you answer a question just because it's the only thing that fit when you played with the calculator or whatever, <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but it's like, I didn't know, I didn't know the steps to get there. So I can't defend it rationally. Right. And that, and that is exactly what is missing in a lot of these things. So how did you get to these rational ideas? Because right now the way that we got them was irrational. And we talk about storytelling and religion. Well, we have to remember that way back, like way back in those biblical times, people didn't know how to read. Literacy rate was like, 0.5% maybe out of a hundred, like maybe had one guy who could read a scripture and yeah. he'd share it to thousands. Right. So mm -hmm. that's why they went to the stories. That's why they had the parables and the parables taught the lessons. Right. So people couldn't read. So philosophy back then was religion, but it was a package deal philosophy. It's a package. You had to accept everything. If you accept this, it's all or none. Yeah. You, then, yeah. then you have to accept everything. And then, you know, all these people don't like the package and that's where these different sects of religions come about. Right. Because, Oh, well I want a divorce. Yeah. So I'm going to create a religion where we can have divorces. Yeah. It's an asterisk. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and that, and that's what that is. But the, the main thing is that these, these religions, all that they are, are package deal philosophies. They are designed to not be questioned. Yep. And in my world, the most powerful word is why. Yeah. It is by far the most powerful word. Yes is a very powerful word. If you say, you know, try saying yes to everyone for the rest of the week, I guarantee you your life will get better. If you try. <laughs> even like, even when you say no, 
you try and sandwich it so that it's like a positive before you say the no. Yeah. If you do that, your life will be better. So when all those people say yes is the most important word, I kind of agree with them. But why is by far the most important word? Because it gets that inquisition going. And when we are asking these questions, well, why shouldn't we kill someone? Mm-hmm. Then we can really start coming to a, upon like how to deduce things. Mm-hmm. You know, like if people start looking at things like the non-aggression principle, for example, that's like a whole other world of conversation that you don't hear when people talk about religion. Uh, I don't know if you know about the non-aggression principle or not. Not a whole lot. Okay. Well, well, I mean, like to just summarize it in like very simple, it's like I can do anything I want so long as it doesn't hurt anyone or harm okay. anyone or I their property yep. right and you can do anything you want one yeah so long as it doesn't hurt anyone's person property or pursuit of happiness yep. and that's originally what the law was for those three things mm-hmm. pursuit of happiness your person and your your property because your property is a result of what you did with your person to yep. create things yep. to get that property so um man i'm I went on too many tangents okay. there. But I think, like, I asked this one time um, to someone. I can't even remember what the question was, but I'll give you an example. Okay, do not do not kill another person. Okay, why? Because God said so. Okay, why did God say that? And just by asking that extra why, you make people think of what is the actual base principle that we should all really kind of share. They might frame it as the reason God said that. But if all the, if they're not even willing to think of why God said that, and they just end, well, just that's what he said. That's, that's what he thought. I think anytime you're not allowed to ask why, and you say that, you know, religion is these packaged versions of philosophy where it's all or none. You're either all in or you're all out. Whenever you're not allowed to ask why, there's something there. Oh, there's definitely a There's a hole. Why, whenever you're not allowed to ask why about currency or, or with government or some sort of decision that affects you in some way, if you're not allowed to ask why, this is a problem because it's a very slippery slope. Right. And I think... Yeah, I think that's very important. And also, I got to get... So, Danny Donnelly is Mike Mike's cousin. And he... Uh, I, I got to get you and him here for a podcast. And I just want to be an observer and ask questions. Because you two are, are the two most clear-headed thinkers in terms of just thinking about thinking. This is so abstract to so many people because it's not something that ever comes up on their radar. But one of the things that he said was same thing. He's like, philosophy is not a thing. It's It's basically just... It's an understanding of being curious and wanting to ask questions to to kind of get to the biggest, the deepest layer of why we behave the way we do. Why are things done the way they're done? And just being curious, right? And it's and another thing too that I find people have gotten away from, it's okay to disagree on things. It's okay for you to have a different opinion than me. But having constructive discussions revolves around where do we disagree? What layer do we disagree on? And then let's each assess our own. Because whenever I'm asking someone... Like I see this all the time. We get um, podorthists or, or people that make orthotics come to our TFC seminars. And a big part of the, sem- not a big part, but a small part talks about um, why orthotics we feel aren't the way to go when you're trying to restore foot function. And with those people, it's funny because once we have a constructive, and if they're, if they paid to come to the seminar, they're automatically open-minded or you'd think so um, to the fact that maybe there's a different way of doing this. And when we actually speak together, we agree on 95% of things. And it's okay that we disagree on that 5%. As long as we know that you think this way, I think this way. Why do we think that way? Was it based on the way we were taught? Was it based on just our our whole archetype of how we uh, go through the decision-making process and evaluate things? But most of the time, you actually agree on so much more than you disagree on, but we fixate on the disagreements. It's so yeah. friggin' weird. And, and then most of the disagreements, so the, 
the clarification aspect. I said the clarification of ideas. Yep. When we're talking about things, so one, first things first, we have to 100% commit to being reasonable and logical empirical yes. evidence. And that's missing a lot these right? days. So if, if, if we agree to those things, then we can have discourse. Yeah. If one of us isn't going to agree to that, then let's just not bother talking because it's yep. a waste of time. Exactly. So first we have to have a reasonable conversation. But then after that, the majority of problems or disagreements that arise, a lot of them are actually just from uh, not well defining your terms. Because mm-hmm. we could be using a word and you're using the word how you learned it in the context that you learned it. And I'm mm. using the word how I Good learned point. it in my context. Yeah. And we don't discuss it. So if we were talking like politics, we'd be talking about like equality or something, right? Like mm-hmm. one person's talking about equality of rights and the other person's talking about equality of outcome. And they're both saying equality. But it means completely different things to them. And if it was clarified right off the bat, you would be on the same page. There'd be no blurriness. And then you might so be like, oh, yes. And then all of a sudden it's like, yes, I agree. And they agree mm-hmm. with each other all of a sudden. you know. And then the things that they don't agree on, well, it's like now we can really see what it is. We can dissect it further with a, a microscope. And then on top of that, when we're looking, when we're dissecting... Uh, when we're dissecting these things with with a microscope, we have to decide which things are like the empirical evidence, which things are reasonable, and which things are preferential, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of things are preferential, and you and I can argue about which ice cream is best, and I'm going to say I fucking love strawberry or raspberry ice cream, yep. and you're going to be like, okay, well, you're agreeing with I like, me. I like, no, I don't. I okay. actually don't like strawberry ice cream. I like, okay. I like amaretto almond flavored ice cream. Yeah, but there's no right or wrong on that, right? There's yeah. no right or wrong on preferences. Exactly. There's never a right or wrong on that. It's But other certain things are ob- objective truths, but a preference is not. So then we have to decide, well, if we're talking about orthotics or something, you know, maybe you guys identify the problems exactly the same mm-hmm. and there is no 100% scientific proof that one is better than the other, but there are logical reasons to believe that both work. Yeah then it just comes down to preference, mm-hmm. right? It comes down to preference and personal experience and neither of you are wrong, but it's getting to that place that is so hard for people to understand. Because if I'm having a conversation with you and you can defend every position you have and it makes sense to me and I can't refute it and I can defend every position I have and it makes sense to you and you cannot refute it, then we can't hate each other. Yeah. I understand you. I understand mm-hmm. where you're coming from because I can't say you're wrong. So yeah. we're, we're cool. You know? And that, I think one very interesting um, kind of, I don't know if you want to call it a thought experiment, was two people going into a room with a certain argument or a certain position and then trying to defend the switching and trying to defend the other person's position. And I think that juxta, I did this with my brother once about some really small issue. And that juxtaposition completely reframed the way that I would have spoken about my position. Because now I'm trying to find, I'm literally trying to find holes in my argument. I'm trying to I'm trying to disprove or or I'm trying to counter the hypothesis that I was trying to prove and it's so it like messes with your brain chemistry. You're like, what the hell am I supposed to say here? Like why you know, but it really makes you and I think going through instead of doing that and switching roles, thinking that way. Mm-hmm. And I think even thinking that way before you even have a conversation with someone to make sure you've done the due diligence to actually examine your position and make sure that it is valid, it is based on logic, science, and I can have a rational rational conversation because number one, I'm not emotionally attached to it. This is just something I feel right now. And I'm open to learning. Yeah. And Jordan Peterson said one of the most beautiful lines. He said, it's very important to prefer to learn than to be right. Yes. And and that's and you can also learn and be right at the same time. Right? But it's we fixate on, 
I think it's just human nature. Like, are we just confrontational in our human nature? Because the amount of people I swear that I see arguing, I give this analogy all the time. Two people are arguing. One guy's saying a triangle has three corners. One guy says a triangle has three sides. And they basically get to the point of almost beating the shit out of each other to try and defend their position. And in reality, they're, they're defending the, this the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just people get blindfolded to just defending their thing. Aren't we supposed to be communal creatures? Like, we're, are, like yes, we're tribal, but it's like almost how you define. Is that person my enemy or is that person my yeah. tribe? And I think if you're on a different position, especially if there's been discourse through the matrix where you're def- basically creating this like wedge between you, then you automatically become tribal and, and the enemy instead of the community. Yeah. The, the way I've always looked at it is I like that saying by Jordan Peterson. The thing that I always think of is you arrive at the truth. You're always trying to arrive at the truth. Yeah. You and you and Both. I, when we are talking, yes. we are trying to arrive at the truth. That's very powerful. Um, when I talk to people, it always sounds confrontational. And people often think that I'm talking in a very pedantic way. Like, I know more than you. But mm-hmm. it's not. It's just because I'm stating facts. Mm-hmm. And if someone says something inaccurate, I point it out and I don't coddle them. Yeah. But to me, that's respecting a person. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, like, I respect you if I don't say, well, you know, if you try to look at it like this. Like, yeah. No, it's like, this is wrong because... Because da, 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 like, exactly. you know what I mean? And, uh, but if, if we think about it more as arriving at, at a solution, it's kind of like a holding hands and walking together. And, yeah. you know, I try to like, even like in relationships, we try to do that with our partners is try to let them know that, you know, we are trying to arrive at a solution together. It just kind of has that better feeling. And I find it has a much better attitude, yeah. which, uh, which kind of emanates outside of it. Completely agree. Cool. That's, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. An hour and a half goes by very, very quickly sometimes so uh but we'll definitely do a part two i think maybe in like june or july or something like that we can have another conversation whether we zone in on because i think there's so much to unpack with um you know just the word philosophy what it means all that kind of Uh, stuff i'd have a lot to say on that yeah especially if you had a video i could really show a lot okay but uh well we're getting i tested out two like little gopros but the ones that i bought they're like knockoff gopros and they actually were really good but they only did 15 minute chunks so i just i returned them powerful amazon taking returns i love it uh but i'm gonna get a different one and i'll put like a side angle like in in what respect like in terms of a visual i would just, like I would just draw or? a diagram because like we talk about clarity okay uh the way that the way that i have been taught or i have studied philosophy from other people has really drawn a lot of clarity gotcha. uh this if you see a certain so diagram. the visual part helps quite a bit. yeah like what i mean is the visual aspect of how to move like you have metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, economics, and aesthetics. Cool. Like in psychology and physics and where they all are and how they all relate to each other. Okay, cool. So if you say something here, then here you have to say this. Gotcha. If you believe this, it can only inevitably go here. Cool. Okay, it's, yeah. It's well, our, yeah it's I'll our, work on getting like a more visual thing because we're going to start being able to put it on YouTube and the video I think is helpful. I like to watch Joe Rogan podcast on YouTube because you actually seeing the humans is kind of cool. Um, so anyway, we'll work on that. Anyway, folks, hopefully you enjoyed that podcast. Uh, I've talked about a lot of different things, and some of these podcasts might not be directly about health, but hopefully it's an interesting enough topic that you get value from it. So we'll catch you next time.